0: are listening to Living for the Cinema with Jeff Gershon. I am a cinema enthusiast of all genres, here to discuss with you one film every episode. The good, the bad, and the ugly of what makes each film unique. And just as a warning... These films might be in theaters now, or they may be from 10, 20, 30 years ago. But regardless, there's a strong possibility that I will be revealing spoilers. I might give away the plot or the ending in this review, so just be warned. Three O'Clock High, which came out in 1987 and was directed by Phil Juanu, starring Casey Jamasco, Annie Ryan, Richard Tyson, Stacy Glick, Jonathan Wise, Jeffrey Tambor, philip baker hall liza morrow mitch peleggi caitlin ohini and john p ryan the genre would be high school comedy it's time for a typical day at weaver high there's team sports cutting class i wouldn't leave school without a good reason fire drills and library skills but the biggest event of the day we're gonna have a fight happens after school there is gonna- Three o'clock high. Rated PG-13. Starts Friday at theaters everywhere. Having just rewatched this for the first time in decades, I have to say, it was significantly better than I remembered. Of course, considering it came from the same director, Phil Juwanu, who would give us the underrated Irish mob classic State of Grace a couple of years later, I guess I shouldn't have been this surprised. I love that movie, by the way. This feels like the kind of movie that the legendary John Hughes would have done around this time. If he was a more creative director, there are no shortage of creative camera angles. Also helped by having Barry Sonnenfeld as director of photography. The film just looks great and is breathlessly paced. And very well cast. I forgot how appealing Casey Shamaska was, and he plays the lead, Jerry Mitchell. Just your average dorky high schooler who microwaves his clothes dry in the morning before school, then brushes his teeth with Diet Coke on the way. Hey, I've been there. The impetus for the plot is that Jerry ends up being summoned to a fight at 3 o'clock in the parking lot. You try and run, I'm gonna track you down. You go to a teacher, it's only gonna get worse. You sneak home, I'm gonna be under your bed. You and me. Three o'clock. Hence the title. With the mysterious new kid, well not really as he's played by Richard Tyson. Motherfucker, you look dirty. Who everyone has been gossiping about? The homicidal buddy Ravel. That's not even a whole story. After he did to the science teacher, they send the dude into continuation. Remember the story about the guy who pulled a knife on his coach? Yeah, that's him. Jesus. He was a continuation. He even took a swing at one of his teachers. And these guys aren't your average history types. They're like ex-cops or something. In fact, I heard they carry guns. He came here from continuation? Uh-huh. That's why they call it continuation, so you can continue murdering people and still graduate. Buddy walks around in leather coat and white mesh shirt, just strutting around silently with a permanent scowl and a long, semi-unruly mane of black, greasy hair. Tyson provides a very entertaining foil as the greaser from hell. Most of the 90-minute runtime is pretty much spent in anticipation of this big fight at three and every effort from protagonist Jerry to avoid it. What were you going to do with the blade, Jerry? Well, you see, it's really not my knife. Buddy Ravel wants to fight me at 3 o'clock today in the parking lot, and and I just couldn't get out of it, so a friend of mine... Well, I had this really stupid idea that I might be able to get Buddy kicked out of school before I had a chance to fight him, so I planted the knife in his locker, and then I put a note on Mr. O'Rourke's desk tipping him off, only he found out about the knife before you guys did, and then he stuck it in my mom's steering wheel with another note saying that I definitely now could never get away from him. But, But like I said, it's really not my knife. That is absolutely the most ridiculous excuse I have ever heard in my entire career as a disciplinarian, Jerry. It's a simple bottle plot, and that's part of what makes this so much fun. You have this giant analog ticking clock throughout, while we watch Jerry having to resort to all variety of desperate measures to prevent this dreaded showdown. With help from his plucky younger sister and best friend editor of the school newspaper, Jerry just goes all out, including robbing the school store, which he himself runs, a failed attempt at framing Buddy, and even seducing his teacher, well, sorta, in front of the class during a book report. Everything and everyone in this school is a bit heightened, and Joannu, along with screenwriters Matheson and Slozy, really does a nice job of keeping the tone relatively whimsical, though never to Heather's level of batshit absurdity. Dear Diary, my teen angst bullshit has a body count. Yeah, 3 O'Clock High gets dark, but never that dark. And along the way, we keep meeting no shortage of interesting characters played by a sneaky good cast with fun acid turns from the adults, including Jeffrey Tambor, Skinner from The X-Files, that'd be Peleggi, the Warden from Runaway Train, that'd be John P. Ryan playing the principal, and Mr. Bookman. I just want you to know that I have a very strong suspicion that this was an inside job. Almost always is. Can I go now? Yeah. Of course, I'm referring to the late, great Philip Baker Hall, who's not playing Mr. Bookman, the character from Seinfeld, but is playing an investigator for juvenile delinquents who is kind of somewhat eerily similar. Shamasco is quite likable and strangely endearing, no matter how absurd the story gets. And this reminds me of how he did have a pretty solid run back in the late 80s with this, Biloxi Blues, Stand By Me, Young Guns, and the underrated Breaking In. It feels like he could have built a bigger career as a likable, shorter, everyman type, but unfortunately, his timing just wasn't there. You see, Shamasco arrived just a few years too late to avoid the dual market correction of both Michael J. Fox and Matthew Broderick, to the point where he was already co-starring in their starring vehicles before he even had a chance but he's still a fun, relatable protagonist, and I'm glad he got to shine in this movie. Along those lines, you can also tell that Juano himself was just a young pup. I mean, the dude was only 26 when he directed this. He was actually younger than both Shamasco and Tyson at the time. He was really just cutting loose and experimenting a bit within a genre that had already reached saturation point by 1987. And overall, it's just a goofy blast. And that brings me to the categories. The first category would be Best Needle Drop. This is the best song cue or piece of score used throughout the runtime of the film. Because music is essential to film. With regards to music, Phil Juwanu hired the German collective Tangerine Dream to do the score. Adding some nifty edge, no less. And yes, I've referred to these guys before in previous reviews for both Thief and Sorcerer. They are one of my personal favorites when it comes to putting out satisfying synth music. One standout of theirs in this movie is a track called Go to the Head of the Class and it's used during the aforementioned scene when Jerry, in an utterly bizarre attempt to get himself sent to detention after school so as to avoid this fight, he gives his book report to his English class and, yes, makes a pass at his English teacher, Miss Farmer. It's a goofy scene that works in spite of itself, no doubt helped by this catchy music playing in the background. In fact, I gotta tell you, it kind of made me think of you, Miss Farmer. There I was, in bed, reading my book. Honey's adventures gripping my imagination. I just knew I had to tell you about a book that was this good. <sighs> hey, Mom. Jerry, I hope this is going somewhere. It's going somewhere. But here's something interesting. When first hearing this, I could have sworn that this was completely lifted from a track from Tangerine Dream's own score for Risky Business from four years prior. That movie, a high school comedy starring Tom Cruise in one of his early breakout roles. The track there is called Love on a Real Train and they sound quite similar. I'll play them back to back. You be the judge. The music from Risky Business. And now the music for 3 O'Clock High. Pretty uncanny, huh? I guess the big difference is some electric guitar added in for the 3 O'Clock High music. And hey, they wouldn't be the only major composers to crib from previous scores. Here, I'll give you a hint. His name rhymes with Franz Glimmer. Regardless, Tangerine Dream still provides great music. And now the next category, which would be wasted talent. This is the most underutilized talent involved with the film. Believe it or not, the legendary Steven Spielberg was once involved with this movie. In fact, as an executive producer, he helped kickstart the film's production, and he even envisioned it as a new variation on the Karate Kid story. Taking us back to the 1980s, having Spielberg as a producer was a big deal, just from a marketing standpoint. It usually meant that no matter his involvement, the opening credits of your movie would often start off with the headline, Steven Spielberg presents. He was, and in a lot of ways still is, a brand unto himself. Several movies released throughout the 80s would successfully utilize this branding for marketing purposes, even when he wasn't actually directing them. And we are talking some big hits here. Gremlins, The Goonies, Back to the Future, Batteries Not Included, and Young Sherlock Holmes, among several others. So basically, having his name on your movie with such prominence would at the very least ensure that audiences would be aware of it and would possibly check it out opening weekend. Well, unfortunately, with regards to Three O'Clock High, this film's tone and style under the direction of Joanu, who also rewrote the script ended up being much darker and less family-friendly than Spielberg initially envisioned. And upon starting to watch early cuts of the film, Spielberg expressed his disappointment that the whole story was veering pretty far from Karate Kid territory. As a result, Spielberg took the rare step of removing his name from the movie just as it was finishing production. Now, don't get me wrong. I think this film is fantastic and that Phil Joanu accomplished exactly what he set out to do as a director. At the time, though, this stood out as something less commercial than your typical high school comedies of the time. And without both the Spielberg name attached and any other real suitable marketing hook, the film was pretty much dumped by its studio in the fall of 1987. It ended up making about $3 million on a $5 million budget, sadly. Spielberg remains one of the most gifted and celebrated filmmakers of the past several decades. But in some cases, his creative compass might have been off. In retrospect, this was one of those cases, and removing himself from the production effectively killed any commercial prospects that this film might have had. So in this instance, Spielberg was actually the wasted talent. And now the trailer moment. This is the scene or moment that best describes this movie. A big reason for what makes this film so memorable is that after 80-plus minutes of build-up and anticipation, the climactic fight between Jerry, our hero, and the dreaded buddy Ravel actually lives up to the hype. Yep, it's clever, funny, and thrilling all the same as we see the entire school gather in that parking lot after school, and even looking out from every open school window inside of it. Yeah, we're not going for realism here, but that's okay. And of course, pretty much every major character who Jerry has encountered on his journey towards this moment shows up as well, including, most memorably, John P. Ryan's principal, who attempts to kibosh this fight before it even starts. And then Buddy pretty much kiboshes him by knocking him out to the ground. Having the principal on there on the ground, barely conscious, of course, results in probably the funniest line in the movie, which we hear him utter just as the fight is starting. Don't fuck this up, Mitchell! And the fight itself lasts just the right length, with all the requisite twists and turns. Yeah, it's a stretch that Jerry could actually hold his own as long as he does. Considering how, up until this point, we have seen Buddy knock out larger folks with just one punch, but we see Jerry get help from his sister, his best friend, his potential girlfriend, Franny. You leave him alone, you maniac! You want him? You can go through me. You got that animal? You hear me? You just go ahead and go through me. Move. Come on, you asshole. Come on, you peckerhead, let's see what you got! It actually becomes a team effort with no small contribution coming from a brass knuckle at just the right time. As far as extended one on one movie brawls go, Jerry vs. Buddy is one of the best from this era. Just behind the alley fight in They Live and Rocky v. Clubber 2 from Rocky 3. And the final category is the MVP. This is the person or people who are most responsible for the success of this film. This was a very tough call, as there are definitely some unique talents involved, which prove essential towards making this film really work. Shamasco is genuinely good in this movie. His Jerry is just one of a kind. As is Tyson as buddy. His buddy Ravel is just unnervingly intimidating, in a manner that most 80s bullies just could not quite reach. I mean, this dude makes both Biff Tannen and Johnny Lawrence seem quaint by comparison. Apparently, during pre-production, Joanu decided that he just had to hire Sonnenfeld as DP after seeing his pretty groundbreaking work in the directorial debut of the Coen brothers just a couple of years prior. The crazy crime thriller Blood Simple, which is definitely a film I plan on reviewing at some point. Bravo to Joanu for seeing that quirky, grimy gem and thinking that this was the guy who should be shooting his teen comedy. But that brings us kind of full circle. Phil Juano's unique sensibilities and approach to this story are what makes it special in the end. I mean, here he was in the mid-80s, a pretty unproven young director who had only done a couple of episodes of the TV anthology series Amazing Stories. Juano was now being hired to direct his first film, a relatively straightforward teen comedy. And his inspiration for where to take this subject matter was apparently not only the quirkier leanings of the Cohens, who were still pretty unknown at the time, but the recent Martin Scorsese dark comedy, After Hours, which had just come out a couple of years prior. Now, by this point, he was considered one of the great directors, but After Hours was routinely looked at as one of his lesser films, it being a relatively ambling comedy of errors focusing on one nebbishy computer programmer's dangerous night roaming the streets of Manhattan. It's a fun movie, too. Now, over the past several decades, you could literally lose count trying to keep track of all of the burgeoning young directors who would fancy themselves auteurs and would attempt to recreate the genius of a Scorsese with their first film. But here's the thing. Joannou actually pulled it off. Yep, if Martin Scorsese was ever to actually direct a straightforward high school comedy, you could see it feeling very much along these lines. The story never pulls any punches, literally, as we see around the halfway point just how much damage Buddy can do with just one punch as we witness in a nutso sequence taking place in the school library. Jerry has hired one of the school's biggest football players to threaten Buddy, hopefully in an effort to steer him away from having his fight at 3 o'clock as planned. And when the dude makes the mistake of poking Buddy, well, he's not only walloped to the ground, but he falls into a bookshelf with such force that it results in a domino effect around the library, knocking down every other bookshelf as well. Just a crazy scene. As the director, Phil Juanu just made a series of bizarre choices with this movie, and as far as I'm concerned, they all paid off. For being true to his vision and directing this unique gem, which still holds up 35 years later, Phil Juanu is the MVP. That was the best fight I've seen since Craig Maddy kicked Jeff Stevens' ass. I still can't believe he dropped Ravel with just one punch. Someone told me he's a black belt. Did you guys hear? He's going out with Karen Clark now. You guy's a stud. Did you hear what happened in this English class? The guy's a completely righteous dude. My rating for three o'clock high would be four and a half stars out of five. Growing up, this was just another programmer to catch after school on HBO. But consider me pleasantly surprised to find that it's truly an inventive and funny, underappreciated teen comedy, which I now think holds its own alongside the best of that decade, including Real Genius, Valley Girl, Adventures in Babysitting, and Say Anything. And if you're looking to watch 3 O'Clock High, it is currently available to buy or rent on all major streaming platforms. And that ends another Brass Knuckle Review. Please like, subscribe and share the Living for the Cinema podcast and follow and like us on Facebook, Instagram and Letterboxd. And join us next time for another review from Living for the Cinema.